Discourse 7 to 9 of Cases of Conscience Resolved by John Owen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Question. When our own faith is weakened as to the hearing of our prayers, when we ourselves are hindered within ourselves from believing the answer of our prayers, have no ground to expect we should be heard, or ground to believe we are heard, what are those things that greatly weaken our faith as to the answer of our prayers, that though we continue to pray, yet our faith is weakened as to the hearing of our prayers? And what are the grounds that weaken men's faith in such a state? Answer. If our hearts are not duly prepared to the consideration of the great and glorious properties, presence, and holiness of God, and duly affected with them in our preparation for prayer, it is certain we can have no faith for the hearing of our prayers. It is also of great importance that we consider aright in what state the things we seek for are promised, whether temporal things that are left to God or spiritual that lie under a promise, and so we may press God immediately about them. There are two things that are certainly great weakeners of our faith as to God's hearing our prayers. First, the one is that intermixture of self which is apt to creep into our prayers, in public especially, in the congregation and assemblies, self-reputation in the exercise of gifts, or whatever it be, weakens our faith as to the expectation of God's hearing our prayers. Secondly, the other is that we pray with earnestness and fervency, with noise and clamour of speech, but do not industriously pursue the things we pray for. Unless we watch and follow after these things, we shall not have ground of faith for the hearing of our prayers. As, for instance, when the soul is burdened with a corruption, there is nothing we are more fervent in prayer unto God against. Yet, when we have done this, we take no more care to get it mortified. Whereas our faith that our prayers may be heard in this thing, we must pursue our prayers, or it will weaken our faith as to the hearing of them. We all pray, but do we believe that God will hear and answer our prayers? I shall not speak unto the nature of that faith we exercise, or what assurance we may have of God's hearing our prayers, but I will tell you plainly what hinders in us the answer of our prayers. 1. We are not clear that our persons are accepted. God had respect unto Abel and his offering, and not unto Cain and his offering. We can have no more faith that our prayers are heard than we have faith that our persons are accepted. How many of us are dubious and know not whether we believe or no, or are the children of God or no? According as our faith is, as to the acceptance of our persons, so ordinarily our faith will be as to the hearing of our prayers. I do acknowledge that sometime under extraordinary darkness or temptation, whilst a person doth not at all know, nor hath any assurance, what is his own condition, whether approved or rejected of God, yet the Holy Spirit of God many times gives assurance of the hearing of that prayer, which is poured out in the anguish of the soul. But let us bring things unto a good issue between God and our souls, and not complain that our prayers are not heard, when we are negligent to come unto the assurance of faith about the acceptance of our persons. We have had many days of prayer, and have not seen that return of our prayer that we designed. This evil lies at the bottom. 
that we have been dubious as to our state of acceptance with God. Let us labor to amend it. 2. Another thing is this. Pray while you will. You will not believe your prayers are answered if you indulge any private lust, or do not vigorously endeavor the mortification of it according to what the scripture and duty require. If any lust ariseth in the soul, and we do not immediately engage to mortify it as God requires, it will break out and weaken our faith in all our prayers. Therefore, if you will be helped to believe the answer of your prayers, labor to search your hearts. Do not think that no corruption is indulged, but such as break out into open sin. It may be you do not know the corruption you indulge. Labor, therefore, to find it out and you will find how your faith is weakened thereby. 3. Again, want of having treasured up former experiences of the hearing of prayer. We have not provided as we ought in this matter. If we have laid up manifold experiences of God's having heard our prayers, it would strengthen our faith that God doth hear them. It may be some have prayed all their days God hath kept their souls alive, that they have not wickedly departed from God, and they have obtained particular mercies. Why, such ought to keep a constant record of God's hearing their prayers. Every discovery made of Christ that draws our souls more to love him and engageth us to cleave unto him is our experience of God's hearing our prayers. 4. I might add, when we ourselves are not sensible that we arise unto that fervency of prayer that is required of them that believe. If we pray in the congregation, in our closets or families, and when we have done, are not sensible that we have risen up unto that fervency that is required, we cannot believe our prayers are answered. It is the duty of all men to pray unto the Lord, but it is incumbent on none more than those who have really and sincerely given up themselves unto God, and yet in truth have no comfortable persuasion concerning their condition. That is a state wherein I am so far from discouraging prayer, that it is your season for prayer in the whole of your lives. When Paul was first called, before such time as he had evidence of the pardon of his sins, it is said, Behold, he prays. If they truly attend unto their state and condition, they may be sure to be the persons of whom also it will be said, Behold, they pray. And even in these prayers they may exercise faith, when they have not faith to believe that their prayers are heard. But while in this condition, it will be hard to believe that their prayers are heard, when they cannot believe that their persons are accepted. Question. When may any one's sin, lust, or corruption be esteemed habitually prevalent? Answer. I shall premise some few things before I come to answer the question. First, all lusts and corruptions whatsoever have their root and residence in our nature, the worst of them. For, saith the Apostle, James 1 verse 14, Every man is tempted of his own lust. Every man hath his own lust, and every man hath all lust in him. For this lust or corruption is the deprivation of our nature, and it is in all men. And in the root and principle of it, it is in all men even after their conversion. So saith the Apostle concerning believers. Galatians 5 verse 17. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, so that ye, believers, cannot do the things that ye would. 
What doth the flesh lust unto? Why, it lusts unto the works of it. What are they? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, strife, sedition, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, reveling, and such like. The flesh lusteth unto all these things in believers, the worst things that can be mentioned. Whence is that of our Saviour, which yields to me a doctrine which is a sad truth? but so plain that nothing can be more. He foretells marvellous troubles, great desolations and destructions that shall come upon the world and befall all sorts of men, and says, It is a day that, as a snare, shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Nothing makes me more believe that day, that terrible day of the Lord, is coming upon the face of the whole earth than this, that it comes as a snare. Men do not take notice of it, do you therefore take heed to yourselves, you that are my disciples, believers, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that day come upon you at unawares. The doctrine I observe from thence is this, that the best of men have need to be warned to take care of the worst of sins in the approach of the worst of times. Who would think when such troubles, distresses, desolations were coming upon a nation, in that place the disciples of Christ should be in danger of being overtaken with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life? Yet he who is the wisdom of God knew how it would be with us. Nay, what if a man should say from observation that professors are never more in danger of sensual, provoking sins than when destruction is lying nearest at the door? In that day, saith he, take care. Secondly, another thing I would premise is this, that this root of sin abiding in us, as I have showed, will upon its advantage work unto all sorts of evils, which should give us a godly jealousy over our souls and over one another. Saith the Apostle, Romans 7, verse 8, Sin wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Thirdly, if it be so, that sin doth thus always abide in us, and will upon occasions work to all its fruit, to all manner of concupiscence, then the mortification of sin is a continual duty that we ought to be exercised in all our days. Colossians 3 verse 3 Ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. A blessed state and condition. I desire no better attainment in this world than this holds out. But what duty does the apostle infer from thence? Therefore, saith he, mortify your members which are upon the earth. What, I pray? Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affections, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The mortification of sin is a duty incumbent upon the best of saints. Fourthly, the fourth thing I would premise is this, that a particular sin doth not obtain a signal prevalency without it hath some signal advantage, for our corrupt nature is universally and equally corrupt, but a particular sin obtains prevalency by particular advantages. It would be too long to speak of all those advantages, I shall name two, whereunto others may be reduced. 1. The inclination of constitution gives particular advantages unto particular sins. Some may be very much inclined to envy, some to wrath and passion, others to sensual sins, gluttony, drunkenness, uncleanness, to name the things which our Saviour names and warns us of. 
it is with respect hereunto that david said he would keep himself from his iniquity as some think i have only this to say that it hath been much from the fallacy of the devil that men have been apt to plead constitution and the inclination of their constitution to the extenuation of their sin when indeed it is an aggravation i am apt to be passionate in my nature saith one i am sanguine saith another and love company they make their natural inclinations to be a cover and excuse for their sin but this i must say as my judgment that if grace does not cure constitution sins it hath cured none and that we can have no trial of the efficacy of grace if we have it not in curing constitution sins the great promise is that it shall change the nature of the wolf and the lion of the bear the asp and the cockatrice and that they shall become as lambs which it can never do if it doth not change it by an habitual counterworking of inclinations arising from constitution if grace being habitual doth not change the very inclination of constitution i know not what it doth that is the first advantage whereby particular sins come to have signal advantage and prevalency two outward occasions and i refer them unto two heads first to education particular sins get advantage by education if we do even in education instruct our children to pride in their fineries and deportment to themselves if we teach them to be proud we heap dry fuel upon them till such time as lust will flame let us take heed of this it is an easy thing to bring forth a proud generation by such means secondly society in the world according to occasion of life is that which inflames particular corruptions according as men delight in their converse so corruption will be provoked and heightened by it i have spoken all these things previously to show you where lies the nature and principle of the danger we are going to inquire into and how it comes to that condition now i shall inquire a little into the question itself how we may know whether a particular corruption be habitually predominant or no brethren i take it for granted the vilest of those lusts which our saviour and his apostles warn us against to mortify and crucify may be working in the hearts and minds of the best of us and that a particular lust may be habitually prevalent where for particular reasons it never brings forth outward effects therefore look to yourselves i say then when the mind and soul is frequently and greatly as there are occasions urged upon and pressed with a particular lust and corruption this doth not prove that particular lust and corruption to be habitually prevalent for it may be a temptation this may all proceed from the conjunction of temptation with indwelling sin which will make it fight and war and use force and lead captive but suppose a person be in that condition how shall he know whether it be a temptation in conjunction with indwelling sin in general or whether it be an habitual prevalency of a particular corruption i answer one it is not from the prevalency of corruption these three ways first if the soul be more grieved with it than defiled by it it is a temptation and not a lust habitually prevalent in this case when a heart is so solicited with any sin sin and grace are both at work and have their contrary aims the aim of grace is to humble the soul and the aim of sin to defile it 
and the soul is so far defiled as by the deceitfulness and solicitations of sin consent is obtained defilement ariseth not from temptation as active upon the mind but from temptation as admitted with consent so far as it consents whether by surprisal or long solicitations so far it is defiled it is otherwise if the soul be more grieved with it than defiled by it secondly it is so when the soul can truly and doth look upon that particular corruption as its greatest and most mortal enemy it is not soldiers who have ruined my estate nor a disease that hath taken away my health nor enemies who have ruined my name or opposed me but this corruption which is my great and mortal enemy when the soul is truly under this apprehension then it is to be hoped it is the power of temptation and not the prevalency of lust or corruption thirdly it is so also when a man maintains his warfare and his conflict with it constantly especially in those two great duties of private prayer and meditation which if once the soul be beat off from it is driven out of the field and sin is conqueror but so long as a man maintains the conflict in the exercise of grace in those duties i look upon it as a temptation and not an habitual prevalent lust two i shall now proceed to show when a corruption is habitually prevalent and here is a large field before me but i shall only speak some few things first when a man doth choose or willingly embrace known occasions of his sin that sin is habitually prevalent there is no man that hath the common understanding of a christian and hath any corruption or lust working in him but he knows what are the occasions that provoke it no man unless he is profligately wicked can choose sin for sin's sake but he who knows what are the occasions that stir up excite and draw forth any particular corruption and doth choose them or willingly embrace them there is the habitual prevalency of sin to a high degree in the mind of that man whosoever he be for sin is to be rejected in the occasion of it or it will never be refused in the power of it two let a man fear it is so when he finds argument against it to lose their force no man is under the power of particular corruption but will have arguments suggested to his mind from fear danger shame ruin against continuing under that corruption when a man begins to find these arguments abate in their force and have not that prevalency upon his mind they have had let him fear there is a habitual prevalency of his corruption thirdly when a man upon conviction is turned out of his course but is not turned aside from his design when he traverseth his way like the wild ass in her occasion who shall turn her aside if you meet her or pursue her you may turn her out of her way but still she pursues her design men meet with strong convictions of sin strong rebukes and reproofs this a little puts them out of their way but not from their design or inclination the bent of their spirit lies that way still and the secret language of their heart is that it was free with me to be as in former days certainly a corruption is habitually present if it seldom or never fails to act itself under opportunities and temptations if a man who trades cheats every time he is able to do so he hath covetousness in his heart 
or if a man, whenever opportunity and occasion meet together to drink, doth it to excess, this is a sign of an habitual corruption. If he be not able to hold out scarce at any time against a concurrence of temptation and opportunity. Fourthly, when the soul, if it will examine itself, will find it is gone from under the conduct of renewing grace, and is at the best but under the evidence of restraining grace. Believers are under the conduct of renewing grace, and I grant that sometimes, when under the power of corruption and temptation, even they have broken the rule of renewing grace. God will keep them in order by restraining grace, by fear of danger, shame, and infamy, by outward considerations set home upon the mind by the Spirit of God, which keeps them off from sin. But this is but sometimes. But if a man finds his heart wholly got from under the rule of renewing grace, and that he hath no leading or conduct but restraining grace, his sin hath got the perfect victory over him. That is, he would sin on to the end of his life, were it not for fear of shame, danger, death, and hell. He is no longer acted by renewing grace, which is faith and love, faith working by love. A man who hath a spiritual understanding may examine himself and find under what conduct he is. Fifthly, Lastly, when there is a predominant will in sinning, then lust is habitually prevalent. Sin may entangle the mind and disorder the affections, and yet not be prevalent. But when it hath laid hold upon the will, it hath the mastery. Question. Whether lust or corruption habitually prevalent be consistent with the truth of grace? Answer. This is a hard question. There are difficulties in it, and it may be it is not precisely to be determined. I am sure we should be wonderful careful what we say upon such a question which determines the present and eternal condition of the souls of men. Supposing we retain something of what was spoken in stating a lust or corruption so habitually prevalent, because this is the foundation of our present inquiry, I shall bring what I have to say upon this question to a few heads, that they may be remembered. I say then, First, it is the duty of every believer to take care that this may never be his own case practically. We shall meet with straits enough, and fears enough, and doubts enough about our eternal condition, though we have no lust nor corruption habitually prevalent. Therefore I say it is the duty of every believer to take care this may never be his case. David did so, Psalm 19, verse 12 and 13. Who can understand his errors, saith he? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Then shall I be upright and free from the great offence. He acknowledges his errors and sins and prays for cleansing, purifying, pardon, but for presumptuous sins, sins with a high hand, and every habitual corruption which hath something of presumption, Lord, keep back thy servant from them, saith he. The apostle's caution is to the same purpose, Hebrews 12, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest a root of bitterness spring up. There is the root of bitterness in every one which I look upon as a corruption in some measure habitual if it springs up unto great defilement. And I beseech you, brethren, beg of God for your souls and mine, that we may be careful this be never our case. Secondly, the second thing I would observe is this. 
whatever may be said concerning its consistency with grace it is certainly inconsistent with peace i wish we would remember what description was given before of this prevalent corruption that we might consider the things now applied unto it here though i would be as tender as of the apple of mine eye in these things i will not fear to say this that the peace which any one hath concurring with a prevalent corruption is security not peace i know men may be at great peace under prevalent corruptions and live upon good hopes that they shall be accepted with god that it shall be well with them in the latter end and that they shall have power one time or another against this corruption and will leave it when it is seasonable and strive against it no more than they have done but all such peace is but security under prevalent corruption there is a drawing back for i would state the matter thus a person who is a professor and hath kept up to duties and obedience till some lust hath gotten strength by constitution temptations or occasions of life and hath drawn him off from his former renovation in walking with god there is then a drawing back now saith the apostle if any man draws back my soul hath no pleasure in him hebrews ten verse thirty eight and when god hath no pleasure according to the several degrees of backsliders it may be that is meant of final apostasy he doth not intimate anything that is a ground of peace to the soul so isaiah fifty seven verse seventeen for the iniquity of his covetousness i was wroth and hid myself from him if there be an incurable iniquity of covetousness or any other iniquity whether manifest unto us or no god is angry and doth hide himself from us i pray brethren let us examine our peace and if we find we have a peace that can maintain its ground and station under prevalent corruption trust no more to that peace it will not stand us instead when it comes to a trial thirdly the third thing i would say is this that if a prevalent corruption be not inconsistent with the truth of grace it is certainly inconsistent with the true exercise of grace it is not indeed inconsistent with the performance of duties but it is inconsistent with the true exercise of grace in the performance of duties it is often seen and known that persons under prevalent corruption will multiply duties thereby to quiet conscience and to compensate god for what they have done amiss persons may multiply prayers follow preaching and attend to other duties when they use all these things through the deceitfulness of sin but as a cloak unto some prevailing corruption but in all those duties there is no true exercise of grace the true determination of this question depends on a right exposition of one john two verse fifteen if we could understand that verse it determines this point love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him there is the question whether prevalent corruption be inconsistent with true grace i know the words may have this construction if any man do make the world his chiefest good if any man put the world in the place of god then the love of the father is not in him he hath either received no love from god or he hath no love to god as a father in christ but indeed the apostle speaks unto believers i am apt to think speaks not of the whole kind but degrees if there be a prevalency of love of the world there is no prevalency of the actings of the love of the father 
that they do not concern the habitual principles of the love of the world and of the love of the father but the prevailing actings of the one and the other and accordingly it may be said of all other graces whatsoever that where there is a prevalency of the acting of sin there is a suspension of the exercise of grace brethren if any of us have been under the power of prevalent corruption i will be still tender and speak what ought to be received and believed whether people do or not it is much to be feared and we have lost all our prayers and hearing because we have not had a true exercise of grace in them some exercise there may be but a due and true exercise of grace will be laid asleep by prevalent corruption and therefore let us take heed of prevalent corruption as we would take heed of losing all things that we have wrought our praying hearing suffering charity for want of a due exercise of grace in them fourthly i shall grant this that spiritual life may be in a swoon when the spiritual man is not dead there is a kind of delinquium of the spirits called swooning away that may befall believers which suspends all acts of life when yet the man is not dead so i say though i should see a man through the prevalency of corruption have all the evidences of a spiritual life cast into a swoon yet i will not presently conclude the spiritual man is dead take the case of david from the time of his great fall and transgression in the matter of uriah until the coming of nathan the prophet persons are generally inclined to believe that the spiritual life was in a swoon when the spiritual man was not dead his fall as an honest man said beat the breath out of his body and he lay a long time like a man dead by reason of that power which one signal sin left in his soul and take that as a great instance that one sin not immediately taken off by great humiliation leaves great and even habitual inclinations in the soul to the same sin so that some ascribed it unto the corruption of our nature for it is a great and difficult question in divinity how one particular sin as the sin of adam was should bring in habitual corruption to our nature to which some answer thus that any one single moral act performed with a high hand hath great obliquity in it disposing our whole nature to corruption david by that single act of flagrant wickedness did continue in it for so long a space of time till nathan came and administered some good spirits to him that relieved him out of his swoon wherefore i say that i will not judge a person to be spiritually dead whom i have judged formerly to have spiritual life though i see him at present in a swoon as to all evidences of the spiritual life and the reason why i will not judge so is this because if you judge a person dead you neglect him you leave him but if you judge him in a swoon though never so dangerous you use all means for the retrieving of his life so ought we to do to one another and our own souls fifthly there is a prevalency of sin that is inconsistent with true grace which may befall those who have been professors so the apostle doth plainly declare romans six verse sixteen know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness there is such a serving of sin as puts a man into a contrary state sixthly i shall add but one thing more and that is this 
there may be a corruption sin or lust habitually prevalent as to whatsoever evidences the person in whom it is or others can discern and yet the root of the matter the root of spiritual life be notwithstanding in the person suppose then there be such a prevalency that the soul judges to be habitual how shall we know whether the root of the matter be in such a person or no if the soul hath anything left of spiritual life there will be something of vital operations in that soul now the vital operations that give evidence the soul is not absolutely slain by prevalent corruption are opposition and humiliation so long as the soul though it be never so much captivated is conscious to itself of a sincerity in the opposition it makes there is an evidence of a vital operation as likewise where it is constant in its humiliation on that account but if it be farther inquired how it may be known that this humiliation is sincere i answer it cannot be known from its vigour or efficacy for that overthrows the question for if the opposition was vigorous and effectual it would break the power of lust and corruption so that it would no more be prevalent but two ways it may be known one by its constancy if the root of the matter be still in us there will be a constant opposition to every act of any prevailing corruption whatsoever i do not speak about violent temptations but ordinary cases in which i know not whence we should conclude the root of the matter is in that man who doth not make a sincere opposition to every instance of the acting of prevalent corruption if a man can pass over one and another instance of prevalent corruption without any humiliation for it the holy sovereign god show him grace and mercy but it is to me the way of a serpent upon a stone i see it not i know it not two it is sincere if it be from its proper spring that is if the opposition be not from conviction light or conscience only but from the will of the poor sinner i would do otherwise i would have this sin destroyed i would have it rooted out that it should be no more in me my will lies against it however it hath captivated my affections and disturbed my course that is all i dare say upon this question that there may be an habitual prevalency of corruption which may seem so to them in whom it is as also to those who converse with them and yet the root of the matter be in them we may know the root of the matter by the acting of spiritual life in opposition going before and humiliation coming after we may know the sincerity of these vital actings by their constancy and by their spring if we are constant in them and if they arise from our wills end of discourse seven to nine